0: there is this tendency for us to compare ourselves to where we were when the conditions were a certain way and the challenge is when those conditions change our place in that environment also changes and the key is acceptance right so and we know that intellectually we know that in order to feel fulfilled and to find joy in this we have to accept where we are and where we are as a result of a lot of things that happen around us. I think the important thing first is to honor whatever it is that you're feeling. If you're feeling down that you are not running at the pace you were running in 2019, if you're feeling down that um, your body isn't feeling like it was in 2019 when you were racing and competing and training all the time in a group and, and you had that energy, that's okay. You have to feel that and as soon as you ignore that then you're already setting yourself up for for a lot more disappointment welcome to the
1: yogi triathlete podcast we are jess and bj and we are waking up and shaking up the world of endurance sports by holding a relentless vision for all endurance athletes to incorporate meditation and mindfulness into their mental training toolboxes. Just like we have seen an explosion of the physical practice of yoga for athletes, we believe that meditation will also be a non-negotiable for the athletes who desire to realize their performance potential. It's amazing people like our guest today, Dr. Daya Grant, that remind us to keep going, that we are not alone in this pursuit of mastery, and that there are many athletes looking to fill the void and find contentment in all areas of their life. I feel like we've known Dr. Grant for years as she's been a supporter of yogi triathlete, but this is the first time we're speaking, and this interview has been a long time coming. Daya is a mental strength coach, a triathlete, a mom, and a yogi. She holds a master's in sports psychology and a PhD in neuroscience. So she has all the intellectual expertise, and she also has the experiential knowledge that comes with being a yogi and an athlete. She is on a mission to empower athletes to realize their greatness, attack their goals, and know fulfillment in the pursuit. Dr. Diagran, welcome to the show.
0: Oh my goodness, what an intro. I am so honored to be here.
1: Yeah, I feel like this, I feel like you, whether you know it or not, you've been like on my list, I keep a list in my heart for podcast guests, and you've been on it for quite some time. And I just trust like when the time is When the time is now, I just get that hit and then we, we go for it. So I, I'm glad that it aligned on your end as well. And um, yeah, we're pretty pumped for this. uh,
2: Yeah. I think we we connected on social media a few times, like back and forth over the past few years. So to actually have this come to fruition.
0: Yeah. That's how I, that's how I found you guys. Um, I was emerging from my cocoon of a PhD program and sort of reinventing my private practice and feeling very called to bring more mindfulness and meditation into my work with athletes. And I think I even said, wow, it'd be so cool if there was a podcast on yoga meditation and, and triathlon. And then <laughs> boom, <laughs> it just landed in the in the um podcast like database. And yes, have been following you guys since and just so so, um, in awe of your work and inspired Mm -hmm. by what you do. And it's, it's just really cool that there are like-minded triathletes out there.
1: Yeah. And more and more and more, um, you know, we're finding athletes that, yeah, they want, they want the performance, they want the PR, they want the, um, the, the calm on the swim and all of those things. But, what they realize pretty quickly and what they're craving more of is that contentment in life, that fulfillment, like you say, the fulfillment in the pursuit of it. We say, it's about the journey. It's about the journey. It's about the journey. But, um, you know, we're humans. We are, uh, we are I, I think, by default attached to results and thinking, you know, under this illusion that the finish line will bring us some sort of worthiness or more happiness in our life, and we quickly realize that it doesn't. Um, so we're finding more athletes that are just, they want the full-spectrum experience in life. Like, why not pursue your best not just for the finish line, but in your parenting, in your ability to be a coworker or a boss or an employee, or whatever it is, how about just a, a great human?
0: Absolutely. That's what pumps me up so much about sports psychology is it's, yes, so applicable to athletes in our sport, but it also extends beyond that, into how we show up as a parent, as a friend, as a daughter, as a mentor, um, in the workplace. So it really, it, it expands across all arenas. And if you can really learn it in sport, it'll serve you there, but also everywhere else. And I think that idea of the pursuit and finding fulfillment in that um, is something that we were all forced to face this past year and a half. We didn't have the races to do. We didn't have these the finish lines to cross. Um, and so- it it forced us into thinking about our why. Why are we doing this? Why are you guys doing what you're doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, Why are all of us athletes doing this if there isn't a structured finish line right there? And for a long time, we didn't know when it was going to be there. So it's, it's tapping into that why. It's getting crystal clear on what that is. And then, yes, enjoying the cliche, enjoying the journey, because that's really all, that's all we have. And that's all that's real.
2: Yeah. Exactly. but how does, so how does uh, last year, it was amazing. Like uh, such a gift for us to investigate that and get curious about that. And I, and I feel, you know, uh, compassion for those that didn't have the answer, you know, and, and their quick answer was to do nothing because they didn't know. And that's almost good too, because you're not forcing anything, but how do we, how do we as athletes not cling to like pre, like pre COVID let's use as an example, like in 2018, you know, my PR at this race was this, but now since COVID, you know, I haven't had time to train and now I'm going to face this, this race. How do we pull that? How do we pull, I guess, ourselves away from clinging to the, that history of who we thought or define ourselves, who we think we are?
0: Mm, that's such a good question. And that is certainly something that I'm um, working with a lot of athletes on right now, not just triathletes, but across the, the spectrum. Um, there is this tendency for us to compare ourselves to where we were when the conditions were a certain way. And the challenge is when those conditions change, our place in that environment also changes. And the key is acceptance, right? So, and we know that intellectually. We know that in order to feel fulfilled and to find joy in this, we have to accept where we are and where we are as a result of a lot of things that happen around us. Um, I think the important thing first is to honor whatever it is that you're feeling. If you're feeling down that you are not running at the pace you were running in 2019, if you're feeling down that um, your body isn't feeling like it was in 2019 when you were racing and competing and training all the time in a group and, and you had that energy, that's okay. You have to feel that. And as soon as you ignore that, then you're already um, setting yourself up for for a lot more disappointment. So acknowledge it, feel it, recognize that what I'm feeling right now is completely valid. But then the next step is not just what are my times, what do I want the times to be, but how do I want to feel? And I think that's sort of um, in my reassessing of what goal setting is and what it means. That's sort of what I've come to is it's not about those numbers. We know it's not technically about those numbers, but it sort of is because as you know, in order to qualify for Kona, as you did, you need a certain number, you need a certain place. Um, But it's really going after that feeling because you can get the number and still not be fulfilled. There may have been times in 2019 where you were running a pace that you were really happy with on paper, and yet you weren't fulfilled. So I think sometimes we forget that we're not always so lit up and feeling good about those numbers that we're achieving. Um, we may have a little bit of a bias in our recollection, and it may we may not have been where we wanted to be. But looking back, we're like, oh, that was great. I wish I was there. So it's it's what do you want that feeling to be? And. For me as an athlete and just as a human being, I'm after contentment, like true deep peace where no matter what's happening around me, no matter what gets ruffled, I have this this deep sense of peace. It's like I, I imagine the water at the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean. It is just so still. And that's that's what I'm after. And if I'm not achieving that, then the numbers don't mean as much. So how
1: do you work towards that when you know you are in a in a vibration or a feeling that's getting a little rocked by something that's happening outside of you or or something that you said? You know, like we get rocked, we get, things get kicked up. So in those moments. How, what are some tools that you
0: use to remember that deepest part of the ocean? Yeah, so um, I open up to the feeling first. So it's the recognition that I'm, I'm getting a little rocked right now. Something feels off. Um, I don't feel truly aligned, but I really am receptive to that. And I, for me, I have to get still. And I know you guys, you know, you guys relate to that. I have to get really still and just feel it. And the beautiful thing for me about meditation and a, a and a mindfulness practice, which is um, in many ways different, but it's it's what that gives me is the ability to increase my capacity to feel it all. And in those moments where I'm feeling like mm, this isn't this just isn't aligned, something's off. Okay, stop. Feel. Get really still and just be receptive to this moment, come back to this moment and all that I'm experiencing right now. And then from that place, it's going back to what my vision is, going back to my intention. Um, I know we talk a lot about intentions with our athletes. And the reason why is so that Attention, attention can follow that intention. So you you get still, you feel it all, and then you remember what your intention is. And once you have a clear idea of what that intention is, then you can start taking aligned action, inspired action, to move closer to that place of of peace or wherever it is that you want to be. Um, there's so much grace that's involved with this process, and there's so much. Um, just trust that you will emerge from that. You will get back to where you want to be. There is a reason this is happening right now. There is a reason your feathers are ruffled. There is a reason. So trust that and know that you'll move through it. Because if you think back to the last time you felt this way, I guarantee that you also moved through it eventually. Mm -hmm. And you also let it move through you, right? Um, I think the last piece is just remaining a little bit detached from whatever it is that you're experiencing. And that's where the meditation practice comes into play. We, we recognize that we are this human being and the experiences we're having are experiences around us. And while it's all intertwined, we are not that experience. We are not that thought. We are not that emotion. There are these clouds that are moving through. And the more you practice sitting in stillness and recognizing that you are the observer, the more you can just create space for all of that to move through. So those icky feelings, those frustrations, the anger, the depression, the all of those feelings, like those, that stuff that we don't love, it can move through. You just have to give it space.
1: So what do we do with all that mental commentary that likes to talk and expand the depression, expand the anger? Like, no, no, no! Don't you dare just sit here in stillness and still listen, do nothing. You got to point that finger. Somebody's at fault here. So, um, yeah. Well, how do you guide people to to work with that mental commentary? What do they do with that? Because we're gonna have the feeling, and we can feel right. Like, okay, we can feel. And the feeling is true. I This is my perspective. The feeling is true. Like you're having it. It's real time. You can feel it. It feels closed. It feels dark. It feels fiery. It feels all these different things depending on what it is. But what I've learned through my own experience, right? Because what you're talking about is you're guiding people through experience because we cannot intellectualize ourselves into this state of fulfillment. So what I found is that through being more attentive to the feeling, my focus there, I'm able to see the commentary. And what I've realized is that the commentary is, a lot of it is lies. It is based on the past. It is not true or relevant to the moment. So the feeling is real, but what I've found is that the commentary rarely is. That
0: is so accurate. And I love what you said about tuning into that feeling because then that allows you the clarity to start to see those those thoughts and the commentary Um, and you're absolutely right those are stories and what i found works for me personally and also with my athletes is to remind yourself to come back to the facts not the stories about the facts and so often we wrap ourselves up in the stories about the facts so what is the fact The fact is, when you're at Ironman Coeur d'Alene, it's hot as heck. You have trained. There are certain things. Your equipment is set. Your transitions are ready. Your nutrition is dialed in. Those are facts. The, I don't know if I can do this because I had a race in the past where it was 90 degrees and I collapsed. That's a story. And it's just what you said, Jess. It's based on past experiences, Sometimes it's based on past experiences and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's um, a projection of what we think could happen. So that's where, whether it's the past or the future you're thinking about, it comes back to what is happening right now and what do I know to be true? So A, it helps to think about what the facts are and, and identify them, like really clearly state what they are. Fact A, fact B, fact C. Okay, I know that. The second part is, um, and there are so many different tools for this, but certain things we know. One is when you take a deep breath and you exhale, everything slows down, right? Like your cortisol in that moment drops, um, your heart rate slows. Physiologically, there is this response, and that is tied to your thoughts. So right now, we're we're thinking, you're thinking about what I'm saying, I'm thinking about what I'm saying. If we were just to stop... (sighs) take a deep breath, the rate at which my thoughts are moving through my brain will slow down. It is a physiological response to that deep breath. So when you find that you're getting wrapped up in those stories, stop, have something like a, a lot of my athletes will wear a rubber band on their wrist and just kind of like, do you do that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, that's like, that's your reminder. That's, okay, I'm going to pull this, I'm going to feel this little sting, get focused, get here. I don't know if that's how you use it. That's how, that's how I've used it. Um, I'm actually curious to hear how you use it.
2: Yeah, it, it interrupts the process. It, I just. I literally just gave this to an athlete who <laughs> wants to give more time to herself to choose five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day. Right. We talked about momentum and doing something to keep moving you forward. Ask yourself, is it moving me forward or moving me back? It's a simple question. And to get into that process, to get into that, interrupt that thought process that you have created yourself and that you've shared with others. So now they're on, they're onto the, the story too. You can interrupt that by snapping the band and you're, you're in, you're kind of shocked out of it. Um, and I love the whole foods, uh, the green elastics that you can pick up at the checkout counter. <laughs> That's if you
1: really need a zing, get those produce ones, the ones that bind the broccoli. Yeah, yeah. bind the broccoli. Those are good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about that story that BJ just shared is he was sharing with me about this athlete and and I say, well, they might need the rubber band and so we were because BJ used this, and for the life of us, we cannot so we it, it was very effective because we I don't know cannot why I used it. remember why. So whatever the thought was has been completely
0: extinguished. <laughs> gone. <laughs> and that's how it works. It's so, it's such a powerful and simple tool. I love yeah. it. I love it. So yes, that, that is one. Um, the other thing is using a mantra. So all these tools are doing just that they're interrupting the cycle of thoughts. And, uh, when I, when I race, I have on my bike, um, I just printed out my mantra, which is I can period, I will period end of story period. And any time I found myself thinking thoughts that were not serving me in that moment, I would look at that and it just, it was a focal point that brought me back. I can, I will, end of story. And that end of story with the period after it would just shut me up. And then I can go back to using the parts of my brain that are actually beneficial in that moment. Um, so having those types of tools, I uh, i work with a lot of baseball players and Every field's the same in so many sports, unlike tries, baseball, basketball, every field looks the same. So you can have a focal point that you look at. And every time you look at that focal point, you, you tell yourself like, be here now, or whatever, whatever you need to tell yourself in that moment, that's going to interrupt the thoughts. So those tools are so important, but you have to practice them and not just whip them out uh, when you're, when you're competing
2: what what's the biggest so what's the biggest struggle to let's use these baseball players like you give them that tool and they they practice practice So what's the and they fall off like why is what what is the capture point for it i know practice is everything you know over and over and over again but um like when they fall off and they say it's not working it's not working for me you don't understand it doesn't work for me how do we how can we um you know, kind of ship shape shapeshift shape, that that message to kind of lure them in another way.
0: I think the principle behind it works. the The mechanism that they may be using may not work. And that's fair. so i I think it's really critical that we listen to our athletes. And if they're mm-hmm. saying that something's not working and they have given it a, a real valiant effort, then we have to honor that and say, okay, I hear you. That's not working. Can we do it a different way? Um, my mentor was Ken Reviza, who um, he, he passed a couple years ago, but he was just phenomenal at that. He never went into any work with an athlete with an ag- agenda. It was, I'm going to wait to see sort of in a phenomenological way. Um, I'm going to wait to see what is presented and his his thing that worked with a lot of at baseball players was uh they would get these little mini toilets and put them in the dugout and you flush it when you when you feel like you're holding on to something and you can't let it go you flush it that worked really well for baseball players and it worked in the dugout um so if an athlete comes to me and says okay looking at this you know outfield post and taking a deep breath not working all right, do you need to, do you need to like punch your hand with, use one hand as a fist and punch your hand? Do you need to um, like kick the dirt? What do you need to do that's going to let it go? The mechanism isn't working, but the principle of letting go and refocusing is proven to work. And I know it will work. We just have to find the right way
2: and th- that's so powerful i think listening right listening as yoga teachers we need to see the class like listen to what listen in another way maybe not what they're speaking but what they're showing us in their body movements like see what they're offering us so that we can adjust to that unique individual and it's, as ca- as coaches and guides like this it's our responsibility like we we must we must listen and we must not carry that agenda the the attachment to the agenda because it worked for you know 80 of the 100 athletes. So it's got to work for the rest of them. And that's not the case. It's not the case at all.
1: Exactly. So what happens when they're not giving it a valiant effort? Mm -hmm. When the good old college (laughs) try is actually just an excuse. (laughs) How do we work with that? I mean, how do you, because I feel like it's, it's more of an experience for you. Like, because it's like we know, okay, science. Like everyone says, I need the evidence. I need, okay, well, here's all the evidence. Like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of, of you know, peer-reviewed published studies. Here you go. Here's the evidence. But um, it's the experience that's actually going to make the cellular shifts, right? And it's going to change the brain and all of that. And some athletes, they're, they're, the willingness isn't there or the block is too big or whatever it is. So how do you, as a coach... When you see like, oh my God, we were just getting, and now they're falling, right? The ego is beginning to rebel. How do you hold that space? How do you allow without pushing agenda? Because we know if we push them too hard, that rebellion unconsciously or consciously is going to grow even stronger and going to pull them in another direction.
0: Yes. It's hard. I think early in my career, I wanted to push. And I wanted to, quote unquote, fix it. Like I knew that we could get there. And I, I truly believe I don't do this work um, because I, I do this work because I know that people are capable. And um, the frustrating thing is a lot of times they, they maybe sort of know that they're capable, but they're not yet ready to put in the work. And so that's where I was at the beginning of my career. Now, with experience, what I've seen, um, gosh, like 12 years later, is if they hit rock bottom, it's OK. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about rock bottom in sport, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. I'm, I'm not working with people with severe um, mental health illnesses. I'm not working with addictions. I'm not working with that, where rock bottom is dangerous. I'm working with athletes where rock bottom may mean they're on the verge of quitting their sport. Is that life or death? No. So that's okay. And here's what happens. And it's amazing because it happens almost every single time. One of two things will happen. One, they, they burn out and they realize that the why isn't strong enough for them to keep doing the work and they're ready to quit. And that can be really hard when I'm working with a high school athlete whose parents are really invested and have been invested, mm-hmm. but they're done and it is okay to be done because what they learned, they're going to take to whatever it is. So that's where I help them transition. The other thing that often happens is they come to me just recently. I had an athlete come to me and I knew he was BSing our sessions. I knew it. Um, we'd been working together for about two years and, and I just knew that he wasn't giving it everything. And he was telling me what he thought I needed to hear, but I saw right through it because I've worked with enough athletes to know. And he finally, things weren't working. And the reason why I knew he was BSing our sessions is because things weren't working for him. Like the sports psychology stuff wasn't working. And I know it works. If you do it a certain way and you try it in, in different ways, it will work. It wasn't working. He finally came to me and just said, Dr. Grant, I've been BSing our sessions. I've never felt so bad <laughs> about my performance. I, I, you might know, and I said I do, and he said, "I don't. I don't like feeling this way anymore." But I still love my sport, and I still want to do this. So, can you help me? And I said absolutely because I never broke the ties. I always, I continue to hold space for him, and I continue to say, "I'm here." I'm always going to be here. I support you. I know what you're capable of. I'm here when you're ready. And he hit rock bottom and then he was ready. So one of those two things happen. You can't stay where, where they can't stay where they are forever. They'll either burn out or they'll realize. And so as coaches, as teachers, it's our job to hold space for wherever they are in that moment. And, um, And to meet them where they are. That's what we do in yoga, right? We always say, I will meet you where you are because yoga meets you where you are. And that's, that's, that's what we have to do too. And then there will be a shift when the time is right, there will be a shift.
1: Yeah. I remember when I first started teaching yoga and such an overachiever, right? Just wanted to be and competitive, like watch out teachers. I'm going to take all your students. And, uh, and I said, uh, something to the studio owner about like, I just want to be, I want to be the best. I want to be a really, really good teacher. And he said, yoga doesn't care. Why do you care so much? Like yoga doesn't care. Like the students who need you are going to find you. There's people waiting for you to release this need to be the best so they can find you and they can learn from you. Um, and I love that because it, it also negates the whole lack mentality of like, oh my God, I've got to hang on to my students or or whatever it is. And we, So when anybody would show up, you know, and say, "Oh God, I haven't been to yoga in like nine months," and I was having a, I was doing good, and then this thing happened in my life, and and that's what we do. We walk away a lot of times. People will walk away from the very things that will help them, um, but that doesn't mean that they're moving in the wrong direction. And I always say, like, yo, like unroll that mat, and you'll see that the mat's still going to unroll. And yoga doesn't, yoga only celebrates when you come back. It doesn't matter how long you've been gone. It just, and I think that. You know, there was times in BJ's life, you know, trying to go for Kona. Uh, and years ago, I remember saying to him, like, are you, are you sick of this yet? Like, are you angry yet? Because he's very kind, he's very gentle, and also a fierce competitor. But are you, are you getting sick and tired of this yet? Because that will get, you know, kind of a, a level of motivation to say, okay, what am I not seeing here? Where, what, what are the missing pieces?
2: Yeah, and I don't think I was at that. It's a very valid valid point. And I think what you were talking about, you know, allowing this, allowing them to suffer a little bit, allowing them to have their experience. So Jess was there every step of the way, obviously for, you know, 20 something years on this journey to allowing me to get to that sucks enough point where I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Okay. Now I'm, now I'm ready. Um, And that doesn't mean like I'm going to start doing a, B and C. And that means I get my Kona qualification. It means I, my resolve goes a little bit deeper, Um, my why goes a little bit deeper i I Mm -hmm. hone in on the details of thoughts and words and stuff that i use and environments around me to really hone in on what i want to achieve and so i came to it in my my own time and and that's the theme because you've been watching us this is our the theme that we've been through is like we let each other have our experiences Mm -hmm. only to grow well beyond what maybe what we envisioned ourselves ourselves to be
0: yeah. Yes, that's so beautiful, and um, and it is cool. It's been just a side note. It's been so awesome to watch your journey. I think I don't I don't remember when I started following you guys. Maybe two years ago or so, or three. It might have been three. Um, and to see now you heading to Kona and and what you've gone through in the short journey that I've kind of peeked in on. Um, And I know a lot of that was because Jess held space and you held space for yourself. And as, as my late mentor used to say, you embrace the suck. Like sometimes you just have to do that. And one of the things he told me when I was just starting out, I was still in grad school and um, I was in the dugout with these high school. It was a a pretty elite high school baseball team. Um, He said the worst thing you can do when they lose a, a key game is to, Say something to try to fix it. The best thing you can do is tell them and remind them to feel how much this sucks. Feel it. Like, encourage them to really feel it. And, um, and that came back when, when, when Ken passed. I was reminded to really feel it. The, the morning after I learned of his passing, and it was a sudden, sudden passing, I got on my yoga mat. And I I moved a little bit and then I just sat in child's pose and I cried and I bawled and I felt it. Like I felt so deeply the heaviness. And in that moment, I started to feel like there were shifts happening and all of what he had told me over so many years. And in the three weeks prior to his passing, when we had this incredible um, hike together and all that stuff was coming in and I was feeling my own being shifting and my purpose shifting. And it was because I wasn't ignoring the pain of what I was going through and that grief Like you have to feel it. And then that allows kind of the things to take form and to rearrange and to shape. And, um, and then you can move forward and go in the direction that you want. And also, All of this is a challenge for us as coaches um, to set aside the ego, right? Like we want, as you said, Jess, whether we're yoga teachers or coaches of athletes, we want to hold on to as many of these beautiful human beings that we we can. And we know that what we have to offer is pretty good stuff. But people are going to leave. Athletes are going to leave. And we've all experienced that. I have had athletes be so excited. And I thought we're like, we're really meshing and we're doing something here. And then all of a sudden I don't hear from them like ever. (laughs) And then they unsubscribe from the newsletter. And you're like,
1: like, what? Okay. (laughs) Yep. There's the next level. Yep. Here it goes. That's
2: practicing detachment. That's like, we we can't attach and we got to let them, oh man, we have been up against that. So many times. So I
1: mean, so many times too, just it, everything uh, with the building of this business and seeing this like, oh my God, universe, are you onto this vision? Because it is like perfect and it's going to unfold this way and that way. And then all of a sudden, like a steamroller comes down the path and just like <laughs> destroys everything. Um, but our, t- our teacher, we learned from our teacher, um, because I'm sure you've had this too. He says you know, if he, when he gets somebody really excited, like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it twice a day and I'm going to do the thing and the three hours once a quarter and then I'm going to go do the eight hours on Christmas Eve and all this stuff. And he just says, we shall see. <laughs> we shall see. Yes. I love that. We shall see. Because we, you know, early in, the you know, early days, even as a massage therapist before I became a yoga instructor, you know, someone seeing someone come in and starting to, be able to live with a reduced amount of pain that they had been in for 15 years, right? So we're seeing the same thing mentally too, right? They've been holding on to mental limits, which are causes suffering and they, like, oh my gosh. And then they get to a place where it goes from a 10 to a two and you're like, oh my God, we're almost there. This is great. And then they fall off the face of the earth and you hear, you know, five years down the road, it's at, it's at an 18 now and this is just the way it's going to be now and you just got to let it go. So it's not getting too caught up mm. in the excitement, right? Not getting too high and not getting too low, but be contentment, santosha, like you said. Mm-hmm. Contentment in all things. Um I can't remember where I read it. Oh, I think it was in the book by Swami Such uh, um the yoga way where he ta- where he says the purpose of all yoga practice, so all the limbs, is to maintain a tranquil mind in all circumstances. Mm-hmm. So tranquil, for some people are like, "Wait a minute! That, now I got to be happy when I feel." No, that's not it. It's tapping into the deepest level of the ocean that is, you know, still that yes. part of us that's neutral, which doesn't mean apathetic. Mm-mm. It it's- no the neutrality, uh, which is so, so powerful.
0: Yes. It's so, um, it's so interesting. This reminds me of my grandmother who my dad's mom, she passed at 97, like lived a very full life. And at the very end, my dad said, I never realized it, but your grandmother was a yogi because she had that tranquility about her. And she, you know, she was a black woman in Harlem who was so passionate about social justice, but the way she approached it was from this center of calm. Mm. And that's how she was effective. And when you look at all of the greats, that's exactly how they, how they are effective is they have to, they're so in tune with that center of calm and that peace and they can maintain that tranquility, yes, they can get fired up, but they always come right back always and um, and that's how you have the greatest effect, and you really create that ripple around you and And that to me, is what bliss is. I think I think so often we we throw around happiness and bliss, and I think there's a very big distinction between happiness and bliss, but bliss is just that it's this. It's the the soul of who we are. It's the center of who we are. It is this unchanging power within us that's always there. But we just cover it up with the stories and the stuff and the, the the past and the traumas and the anxiety and all of it. We cover it all up. And so what's self-realization? Self-realization is is realizing that bliss within. And I feel like that's my mission as a mental performance consultant is to Help athletes tap into that bliss, to that unfettered center from which they can really shine and um, and be great and be powerful and, and strong. And we all have glimpses of it, right? Like we've had we've all experienced those moments of bliss where anything can be happening around you, but you're not feeling affected by it. You're observing it, but you're not affected. And, um, and you just feel so centered. And I think the more you can be present, the more you'll set yourself up for experiencing those moments of bliss. And then you can start to string those moments together. And then you're living a more joyful life. If you have a little bit more moments of bliss, if they're a little bit more frequent, then, then you're starting to move in the right direction. Um, And that's what we can tap into through our sport. Like, that's why we love movement. That's why we love the multi-sport or whatever sport you do is because you have those moments of, okay, whoa, whoa, this feels really good. Um, And then we have all the other stuff too, because we have to know the contrast. Right. We have to (laughs) have the the contrast. That fuel the why.
1: How do you define presence for people or present moment
0: awareness? Mm. It's, it's opening to what is without attaching to what is. So if you are fully present, you are completely aware of all that is happening right now. And yet, you're not moved by it. Mm. Maybe that's not the right word, because you can you can feel it, um, but you're not totally thrown off your center. Like I think, I think we forget that like the only thing, and Eckhart Tolle talks about this all the time, the only thing that's real is the present moment. That's the only thing that's real. So when you are fully present, you are you're living. <laughs> like that's the definition of. Um, and, and you're living with whatever is arising in this moment. Um, also, I think, I think presence can be really hard to define, but it can be really easy to feel. So uh, a lot of times, um, something I'll do is also what I got from Ken Revisa, is he would do these 30 second drills where this was particularly works, works particularly well with groups. So you would get groups of athletes. Um, I did this with dancers recently. And it was Zoom, so it was a little bit different. But it was, OK, for 30 seconds, I want you to commit to being fully here. And we go around, and I look at everyone on the screen or in person, and they gnaw. And they say, yes, OK, I commit to being here. And that means looking at my eyes and maybe watching my mouth moving and hearing what I'm saying. You're fully here. And you do that. And for 30 seconds, I just coach them through, in this moment, you're right here. This is, this is the present moment. This is what it feels. It notice it. Feel the energy and there is this tangible energy that you can feel when everyone is present and it is just it's this vibration that is so powerful um and we can feel it at the start of of a try like it's we're all here we're in this something magical is happening right here in this moment Imagine if we were like that all the time, if everyone was able to tap into that vibration and then we all just like wandered around with this <laughs> vibration. That would be so powerful. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a feeling and you know it. When someone's present and they're in conversation with you, you can feel it. You know it. And when someone's not, you can, they can feel it. And as a mom, my son knows when I'm not present the kids just pick up on it. Right. And so um, what do we need to do to keep bringing ourselves back to now? And once you know what it feels like, it's a little bit easier to, to guide yourself back. Although it's still challenging, of course.
2: And then, and of course it's challenging. Well, looping that back into like athletes and training, you know, and well, Eckhart Tolle talks about pain and suffering is the resistance of now. Mm -hmm. So when I'm on the trainer grueling out, you know, intervals, it's not about blocking. I don't want to not feel the pain. Like, I don't want to block it out. And that's the natural tendency or reaction for people is I just want to block it out. Like I don't want to think about it. And what I think has been a shift in my mindset over the past few years and maybe what assisted in me finally getting achieved my goal is to embrace this, this feeling. So what does it feel like to be in that very essence of the moment, the present moment, when my mind is saying, stop turning the legs over like be there for that participation and just, can you be there for one more stroke, one more stroke, one more stroke. And then soon enough, the interval's over. Okay, great. The moment has passed. Now it's time for the new moment. So do it again and again and again. And so as athletes, I I think, and I'm speaking for myself and maybe you can, you can share too, because you work with a lot of them. It's it's first about blocking stuff out and not feeling it, and then it's about where can I form a relationship with it. So I, I like it. Pain is knocking at the door. You you can either keep it knocking at the door, don't answer it, or you can open it and invite it in and sit with it on the couch and get super comfy and cozy with it and snuggle and like a golden retriever and really love it and, and get to know it. So is that has been
0: your experience? too. That's
1: not a Clark reference. <laughs> it's not a reference to Clark. Right? I mean,
0: that's that's exactly right i'm I'm now imagining that there's a (laughs) sweet dog right here (laughs) um that's so it but isn't that the beauty of pain and we forget that pain brings us into the present moment Mm -hmm. it's like if we didn't have that it would be so much easier to get out of it and as athletes we feel that all the time so if you want to practice presence feel that pain yes open the door feel it um it's like it's like the neuro mechanism for you to get present. So thank it. And yes, you absolutely, you have to get really comfortable being uncomfortable. And I remind, I, I mean, we talk about this in yoga all the time. And so I love it when athletes take yoga as like, you know, they do yoga as their cross training or whatever, for whatever reason. It's like, they'll get into some of these poses and then I remind them, this is uncomfortable, huh? And they're like, yeah, this is uncomfortable. Cool, awesome, feel it, breathe there, feel it. Like, this is so uncomfortable. We're not necessarily meant to do this. Um, and yet here you are and your, your body's all twisted up and you're in this beautiful asana and it's uncomfortable, get comfortable there. If you can do it there, you'll be able to do it in your sport. And if you can do it in your sport, you'll be able to do it in life when, you know, stuff hits the fan and, and, and things happen. So yes, yes to that. That's critical. Like you've experienced it as an athlete. And so now you can really, and I know you do guide your athletes that you work with on that. And um, yeah, it's the same with me. Just that you've got to feel it and get comfortable with that discomfort. Yeah, it's, it's,
1: it's so interesting because we live in these bodies that are hardwired for safety and comfort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, and that safety and comfort can be stopped turning the pedals over. It can be, don't sign up for this race because you might not achieve your goal. It could be, um, don't go and meet this new person for coffee because it's the unknown. Mm -hmm. So we've got this hard wiring. um, And let's talk a little bit about the neuroscience of the wiring in the brain. We know, thank goodness, it's all out there on paper now that the brain has that quality of neuroplasticity and we can change the brain. But in order to do that, we, we're coming up against grooves, right? In yoga, we would call them samskaras, the things that you cloud our ability to see the world clearly and how we're moving through it. In science, you probably have a better... Um, better terminology for this, but science is kind of those locked and loaded automatic responses um, because that's the known. It's efficient. It's the least action pathway. Um, So how, what are we coming up against as we are now, you know, sitting in stillness, watching
0: the thoughts, what's happening in the brain? Hmm. Great question. It's, um, so there's two things we have to keep in mind. One is, and you've mentioned both of them. One is, um, homeostasis. So our body always wants to come back to this place of safety and and health and balance. So no matter what we do, we come back to that place. We train really hard for four days, for five days, and then we take the sixth day off um, because we have to come back to balance, to homeostasis. You are... I was going to say, we never see bears, but actually I was in Tahoe a couple weeks ago and we did see a bear (laughs) and luckily we were in the car and like mama bear was so happy with her cubs and and we were not separating her. But if I was not in the car, I would have had that moment of cortisol spiking, everything elevating, my palms getting sweaty. Okay. Then what happens after that you come back to homeostasis? So that's one, that's one principle we need to know. Homeostasis, your body wants to come back to balance. The second is neuroplasticity we used to think that your brain stopped growing at like 20 something years old. And that was it. Like you were, you were locked in. Now we know that neuroplasticity. Yeah, really. That would have it's been like a bummer. <laughs> It'd be such a bummer life. Right. I'd be, I'd be
1: smoking a cigarette right now. Yeah. <laughs> if I was in my 20 year old brain, I'd be firing up a Marlboro light.
0: <laughs> yeah, we were different. We were just like different versions of ourselves then. And, um, So thank goodness that neuroplasticity is possible and we can keep moving and and changing. And really what's happening with neuroplasticity is, yes, there's, um, there's neurogenesis, which is the regrowth of new neurons, new brain cells. But there's also the rewiring of pathways. So what's happening over time is that as you... As you push yourself a little bit more, you get a little bit uncomfortable and sit with that and then come back to that place of balance and homeostasis, your body is adjusting. And physiologically, it's like, oh, okay, I can do that. It didn't kill me. That's possible. You don't want to go too fast. Like, (laughs) I always see these programs for people that don't work out. And it's like the extra, what is it called? Couch to 5k, 5K. <laughs> yes um so like that's a progressive path you can't just jump into if you do not move jumping into doing an ironman race is not going to be the, the best idea because you need to expand slowly um like if you have a balloon and you just kind of Pump it up instantly with a whole bunch of air; it's going to pop. But if you slowly inject air into that balloon, it'll grow, it'll grow, it'll grow, and it'll increase its capacity to hold. And that's what we want to do. So, um, so that's why we get uncomfortable. That's why we push our comfort zones a little bit, knowing that our body wants to come back to a healthy place, and it will. But also knowing that in order to grow, we need to we need to push ourselves and rewire. Of these networks, and um, from a neuroscientific standpoint, that's why it always comes back to meditation. That's why meditation is so important because in meditation, we're able to change our relationship with. our brain at rest. So we have what's called the default mode network. And this is actually super cool because it was just really discovered in the last like two decades, but mainly the last decade, but a lot of stuff came out. So when we're just at rest, we used to think that like the brain's at rest, but the brain is not at rest. Like it's always moving. There's always things happening. It's firing, it's active. There are are connections and pathways. Um, There's a lot of communication happening in the brain. But that default mode, if we're there too much in this place of we're not focused on a task, but we're ruminating, but we're active in a way that's not serving whatever task is at hand, then over time that rumination can lead to depression. It can lead to um, mental states that we don't want and that don't serve us. So what meditation does is it changes the default mode network and it it quiets it down so that instead of being in these moments of rest and having your brain go to that default mode and it's still really active, it may not be helpful. It goes to this other place of like a met, more meditative state that is allowing um, your brain to sort of rest and refuel and recover. So through meditation, you know what that state of mind is and what that brain state is. And so your brain then is like, oh, this is familiar. I can maybe get back to that in other places. Um, The reason I bring neuroscience into all of my work is because I spent five really hard years studying it. (laughs) I just don't want to ignore that because that was a brutal, brutal chapter of my life. Um, but also because I find it so empowering. Like When we know how the brain works, we know why these things work. It makes me want to practice imagery. It makes me want to meditate. Yes, I'm going after the feeling, but I also know what's happening to my brain. And a lot of the athletes, I would say 100% of the athletes that voluntarily come to me, um, I no longer work one-on-one with high schoolers, but most of them did not voluntarily come to me. They were just ushered there by their parents. The ones that come to me, 100% of them, are very cerebral. They are intellectual athletes. So they are up here in their heads all the time. And that's what's getting in their way. So when I mention a neuroscience study, um, it's exciting to them. like they, they find it really fascinating. And then it empowers them to put into practice some of these tools and techniques.
1: Yeah, you got to get the, you got to get that intellect on board. You got to get it on board or you're just, or you're going to stay in the fight of, because you know that you, when you first sit in meditation, like when I first sat in meditation, it was anything but bliss. Yeah, there was probably something happening in my brain, but there was also a volcano of suppression that was rising to the surface and it was terrible. But I had some information. You know, one of the things that really clicked for me was the, anti-aging, you know, benefits of meditation, right? The lengthening of the the DNA, the tips of the DNA and things like that. And I was like, okay, like grab on, vein, it doesn't matter. Like self-absorb, it doesn't matter. Like whatever you can grab onto to get yourself to sit, commit to sit. Um, the, I always tell people, don't look at your meditation practice. Don't look at those 10 minutes, 20 minutes as your means of it benefiting you. How are you mm. sleeping? what happened when that annoying coworker got extra annoying, right? Like what happened before the presentation at work? What happened at the starting line when you did that pranayama before you got into the swim, you know, things like that. Like look outside everywhere except for in those five, Mm. 10 minutes, especially at the beginning, because you're not going to find a lot of evidence that says keep going.
2: Yeah. They take (laughs) take score way too early. They're like this meditation is not working for me. And they, they, they're, they're kind of like ticking the box. Okay, there's five things I need to do in meditation. I've done five of them. I'm done. On with my day. Get on the phone. Get angry at the person. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that serves, it really doesn't serve anything except um, just, sitting, just sitting by yourself. You're, 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 you're tasking it out like you do with everything in your life. And mm. so the resistance we see is they, they take score. They, they want to see. It's not working. I and mean, they're not working, being on um, uh, whatever their expectation is. So I want to be more calm and blissful. And they go, walk out of meditation, and after oh, two weeks of doing it, they're not feeling it. Well, you've just spent 30 or 40 years walking like a zombie in this world, like <laughs> unaware,
0: right? Say it like it is, Beach. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Say it, just wake up, wake, up. wake just, up. Yes, but I think that's. Um, I mean, you guys say all the time, like, awake and ready, but it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't. And the changes that happen at the cellular level are subtle. I mean, we've got trillions of neurons and brain cells. Like, give them a chance to change and to adapt, and they will. I promise you they will. Um, But, you, yes, you have to give it a chance. And it's true. Like, how do we know that it's working? It's not that, okay, yes, okay. So now I, I, I was born into a family where our parents meditated, and they taught us, me and my brother had to meditate as kids, like as little kids we were meditating. But even now, and I don't know if I should say this because I don't want someone to say, well, if she can't find bliss in every meditation, then why would I try to do this? So I'm, I'm going to be very careful in saying this, but it's true, I have days where I sit down and it is messy. And I'm just like, there is no, I mean, it's my brain is just rapid fire. And yet I know that it's working. I know that something's happening. And in those moments, I'm giving my brain the space to do what it needs to do. If it hitch, if it just has to like go wild for a moment, I will let it do that. But after decades of this practice, I know that it works because of the person I am outside of my yoga mat and outside of my meditation space. Exactly. How I respond. Like my relationship to any sort of stimuli is different. And not 100% of the time, but 100% of the time I'm at least aware of what my response was to a certain stimulus. And that awareness is is what we're really after. Um, So yeah, you just have to keep doing it. It's like... Um, one of my favorite analogies is that idea of of a water dropping on rock and it just, it doesn't, you can watch it and it's not really making any sort of literal dent, but after a long, long time of that single drop of water, that single five, 10, 20 minute meditation practice, at some point there is a little dent. And if you wait long enough and if you practice long enough, and if that little drop of water keeps going, it's going to break through that rock and Whoa. Like, and, and, and then the winds may shift and then the water's now dropping on a different rock, but at some point it's going to break through and you're like, Whoa, that's what, I mean, I, um, I did this is going to get a little bit personal, but I did, um, you know, a meditation right around Christmas time, uh, which is like when I do my yearly long meditations and it was, this was 2019. And it was like, it was the best meditation I've ever had. <laughs> it
2: was just, just going to say it.
0: <laughs> it was just like I dropped in. It was I didn't even do the whole eight hours. I did four hours, and it was um, I was just there. And then 2020 happened, and it was like, okay, how am I going to respond to this? And it was painful, and there was a lot of fear, and there were a lot of unknowns, and I was so worried about my parents, and there was a lot of that. But I kept going back to I know what that was like in those four hours and I know I can get back there. I know I'm capable of that. So I'm gonna sit for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes every single morning and that I know got me through, got me through some really dark days last year. Um, and so that's why you practice. It's how you how you show up in every other, area of your life. That's why you practice and you just keep going and you have to trust. And, you know, like, I know you guys have talked about Paramahansa Yogananda. Like he never, he never said, and in fact, he said, don't take my word for it. Like, yes, I can serve you up all these, all this evidence. And as a neuroscientist, I can give you all this data, but don't take my word for it. Like sit and see what happens to you when you sit day after day after day look back in a year from now and see how you responded to things and that's how you'll know that's how you'll know that it works
1: I think that's the perfect mm-hmm. message to end this podcast on yeah I love that so much be the experiment of one be the ex- be an experiment of one you know um, prove it Pro- prove to me that it's not working I think you'll prove that it's working very well. Um, that's amazing. Uh, so I'd like to make the official announcement that you're just going to be a guest uh, every week and we're never having any other guests on ever again. Cause we're getting this message out there. Damn it. <laughs> You're beginning. all going to be meditating. <laughs> no, seriously. Thank you so much. And we didn't even get into your backstory. I'm going to put a couple links in the show notes for people to go and check out your story because one of the cool things is you were born into a meditating family, which we know from these ancient yogic texts is a very rare thing for a meditating couple to not only have... Do you have two, two um, children in the family? Two, one sibling?
0: Yeah, I have one sibling, yeah, me and my brother. So
1: to bring two beings into the world that were ready to meditate, you are um, quite an old soul and really grateful to be sharing the earth with you. I'm glad you're in our soul group.
0: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I am so, so honored. You guys are... Um, just such lights, and I love sharing this space and sharing this mission with you. Um, so thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for inviting me into your circle and um, I look forward to many more conversations and hopefully in person soon. Yeah, let's yeah, do the absolutely. next one in person. Yeah. yeah, yes, for sure. Thank you so much, Daya. Thank you.
1: Thank you both.